You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Man, it was 25 years ago when I was first studying to take my driver's test. Uh, I got some booklets and study for the written test and then, you know, had, had done some practice driving. I grew up on a ranch, so we were, I was driving like at age seven, driving something. And so I felt pretty confident, had studied, had gone, and so went down to the DMV down here, uh, you know, just off of Catron Boulevard, and uh, it looks basically the same as it did uh, all that time ago. Uh, there's probably still people in line from when I was there. <laughs> But uh, so I went and I took, uh, I took the test, aced it, just felt so confident. And then you get in the car and the, the guy sits in the seat next to you and you're there and man, it was pristine. Like the driving was excellent. I was checking my blind spots. I was uh, following at least two car lengths behind people. Like it was just a masterpiece as I navigated this 25 minute stretch. And we brought back and parked the car and he said, nice job, but I have to fail you. And I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean you have to fail me? Well, you ran the stop sign that's right outside the DMV. You, ran, you failed it right at the very beginning. And I was like, there's no stop sign there. He's like, there's a stop sign there. You ran it. I have to fail you. But you can take it again in a little bit. And I was just like, what in the world? I've never failed anything in my life. I've been driving things forever. There's no stop sign. And sure, of course, we left and there's a stop sign right there. Right there, obviously, right there. And I just totally missed it. I was totally confident that I had passed the test, that I had met the standard of righteousness to get a driver's license. And lo and behold, it was unveiled to me right in front of my eyes that I had failed. I had, I had actually answered a question on there. I know what to do at stop signs. In fact, it just spells out what you're supposed to do. And I totally blew it. I missed it. And uh, I did eventually, 10 years later, get my driver's license. No. But, uh, but what we have there is this, uh, this sense of righteousness that is totally dashed by reality, by teaching, by pointing out something that Jesus is going to do in this next section. We've got a big section. It's complicated. It's some of the most controversial things that Jesus ever said. So we've got a big task in front of us, but uh, I, I want you to get the big picture, is that Jesus is going to, as he said earlier in last week's message, that he fulfills the law and the prophets. As he's bringing this new kingdom and has been announcing the entrance of a new kingdom, the natural question then is, how does this relate to the kingdom that God has already brought? through the nation of Israel that he's already communicated through the law. What is the relationship of Jesus' kingdom to the work of God that has already been taking place? Is there now no law? Is there a change in the law? Is he repudiating the law? And he says in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, which Justin covered last week so well, he says this, this is the relationship to all that's come before. After giving the Beatitudes and the place in his kingdom, salt and light, he says this, he clarifies the question. In fact, Almost the entire Sermon on the Mount is building off this one question, uh, this one statement. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is not a new plan of God. It's a fulfillment of the old plan of God. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest part of the punctuation will pass away will pass from the law till all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that last statement is just so, would have gotten everybody's attention. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, every bit of it. He's bringing it to its right 
completion, expression, and end in that way. And he says in just very stark words, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, when he's saying that, he's talking about the most righteous people that anybody knows. The scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes copy down the Scriptures. That's their full-time job, is to just make copies of the Scripture. Word for word, letter for letter, perfect copies. And they had spent so much time in the Scriptures. They spent all their time in the Scriptures. They became experts in what the Scriptures said. They probably had much of it. Uh, mastered and memorized. And the Pharisees, they were, they were kings of applying of it. Like they were, they were the people you go to to go, what are the technicalities in the law? What is right? What is wrong? And Jesus is saying, you need to have a righteousness that exceeds the godliest people you know or you won't get in. Righteousness is the ticket in. You have to have righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. So then the natural question is, well, what does this mean? Because that sounds really depressing. None of us are going to make the cut. And Jesus just makes it worse. He gives six examples in verses 21 through 47, or yeah, 48 actually. Let's just read it together because now what he's doing is he's taking some examples. He's not trying to write a whole new law code. He's trying to explain what he means by greater righteousness. And there's this recurring phrase that you'll you'll hear him say where where he uses the phrase, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And what he's doing is he's taking the Old Testament law and he's authoritatively applying it. He's kind of cleaning the barnacles off of it, all of the misperceptions that the Pharisees and scribes had attached to it, that the people had been taught about the law, and he cleans it off and shows them what the law was really meant to be about. So he corrects some misconceptions and then explains what he means by greater righteousness, deeper righteousness, perfect righteousness. So let's, let's read Matthew 5, 21 through 48 and just feel the weight of this of the righteous standard that is required by God in His kingdom. Verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going, on, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid that last penny. You have heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath on your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn, turn to him the, all, the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than, than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the bookends. Righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees, meaning you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Those are the bookends. The middle is just explanation, just examples of what exceeding righteousness really means. And everyone is just hushed at that moment because that's an intense righteousness. And as we dig into this, I already feel just reading it how inadequate I am to try to unpack this. I'll do my best for sure um, for us to get the big picture, but the specifics of this go so deep. And there's so many, well, what if questions, right, that are going to come up. Let's not get so down into the what ifs that we miss the point. The point is, is that you need a righteousness that is perfect. That that's what this kingdom requires. That's where this kingdom is headed. So three ways that the law has been misunderstood. Again, Jesus uses this phrase, you've heard it said, you've been taught this. Let me authoritatively tell you what the law means. We've got three sets of two. We've got six examples that he gives here. Six examples of how the law is meant to, you misunderstand the law. You've been mistaught about the law. Three sets of two, all of them horizontal, dealing with how we relate to one another as an expression of how we relate to God. So these are all love your neighbor. This is second table of the law kind of stuff. But they have vertical implications because God is watching and God cares about how we treat each other. So these are all related to our relationships with each other. The first two on murder and adultery, we realize that the law has been, hasn't been applied deep enough. Like you read the Ten Commandments and you look through them and you go, well, at least I haven't murdered anybody. And guess where Jesus starts? Oh yeah? The one you feel most confident that you've kept? Let me just show you how you haven't kept that one either. Because you've been angry. And he drives that one home. He starts with the one that we think we might have checked off, right? All right, one out of ten is not bad. He's like, no, you don't even get one out of ten. So, so murder and adultery, you think you haven't, you've kept those. But let me just tell you that you've not, the law has not been pressed far enough down into your heart. To the seeds, the intentions, the sins behind the sin of murder and adultery. Number two, in the, uh, in, the, in the discussion of divorce and oaths, the law has been overshadowed by its exceptions. The Old Testament law taught us in several places, I could give you those references, I don't have them in front of me, but those references where this covenant can be, can be, um, can be dissolved through divorce under a specific set of circumstances. And the teachers of the law had so pressed the exception that now we totally lost what marriage was intended to be to begin with. The exceptions have now overshadowed. We've opened up the loophole, so to speak, to where we've missed the intention of the law entirely. Same with oaths. What oaths do you have to keep? 
Well, if you swear by Jerusalem, you only have to keep like 50% of that. But if you swear by God, you have to keep like 100% of it. So there's just layers of truth-telling in the oaths. And it's like you, you've spent so much time looking at the technicalities and the loopholes that you miss the intent of what kind of person you're meant to be. And then in the last one, retaliation and love. The law has been extended beyond its intention and therefore repudiated. You took the idea of justice that's supposed to be run by the leadership and now you've made that a requirement. You must retaliate. Like, no, that was never the intention. You made an extension to the law that is not right. And you've heard that it said, love your neighbor. Well, the logical conclusion then is to hate your enemy. He goes, well, that repudiates the whole law, right? So three sets of two, all pointing to us examples of how we've misunderstood the law and we've broken it in ways that we didn't even realize. We ran stop signs. We didn't even know we're there, right? Because you have misunderstood the law. You've misunderstood the intention of the law. And God is far holier and you are far more sinful than you realize. This greater righteousness, this perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, needs to go all the way down to the heart. Not just technical obedience religiously, but heart transformation. A different kind of person on the inside. It's like the clown mirrors. Like when you go to, uh, I think they have one at Reptile Gardens, right? The clown mirrors, right? You stand in front of it and all of a sudden you're like, hey, I look pretty skinny and tall, looking good, right? I look pretty good. You go to the other one, you go, oh, I'm kind of short and chubby now, right? Like what Jesus is saying is that what you understand of the law is totally distorted. Let me hold up an accurate law. Let me, let me, let me take the law and hold it up as a mirror and give you an actual picture of what you look like compared to God's standard of righteousness. And so it humbles us here as Jesus corrects the clown mirror and then forces us to look at what true righteousness is really about. We find that the Pharisees and scribes have totally twisted. They're not a good example of what true righteousness looks like. In fact, ironically, they will harbor anger that leads them to murder Jesus, right? They will do the proper paperwork like they required for divorce in order that they might be technically innocent of murder. They will avenge themselves far beyond what is appropriate. They'll go far beyond eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. They will actually murder the God who came to them. So we, find, we will find as we read the book that the Pharisees and the scribes don't have a righteousness at all. So three things that Jesus is doing, I think, in this section. One is that he's showing that he is the sole authoritative teacher of the law. He, he just like unwinds maybe a thousand years of developed theology, developed teaching on this. He goes, you've heard from old, but I say to you, and immediately clarifies with authority that I'm, I'm the lawgiver, and so I'm the law interpreter as well. Like, that's what's going to be amazing at the end of the sermon is that people are going to marvel at the authority with which he teaches. He comes in and he, he, thinks, he's, he thinks he's God. <laughs> he thinks he has the right to apply the law to us, and he does. So we just are... We marvel at the fact that Jesus goes, I say to you, he appeals to his own authority to interpret the law. Secondly, he shows how utterly pathetic your righteousness is, right? And even the scribes and Pharisees. God is far more holy than you imagine. Hey, uh, middle school guys, does this look familiar to you? Yeah, meeting with some middle school guys on Tuesdays. And here's kind of how it works. That's not kind of a grainy picture. I should have picked a better one. But as we grow in our walk with Jesus... We realize that God is holier than we imagined. 
and that we're far more sinful than we ever imagined, right? And you get that cross in there and you realize just the, gl- the glory of the gospel grows as well, right? As we understand, like, when we first come to faith in Christ, we recognize that on some level. But as you grow as a Christian, you, you grow in just how majestic and holy God is. And you realize that there's depths of your own sin. That, and that's exactly what we're going to see in this, is that you, your God has been too small, Jesus is telling them. Your understanding of the kingdom has been too small. Your expectation of righteousness has been too, short, too small, too shallow. You've had too high opinion of yourselves. The scribes and the Pharisees have misled you. And so he's going to widen that gap. The expectation of God and His holiness, the perfections of God are far greater than you think. And your depth of sin goes far deeper than you realize. The gap is widening, wide and ever widening with each day. And so, third of all, it shows the entrance, ethos, and endgame of Christ's kingdom. He talks about you must have righteousness like this to enter the kingdom. I think he's also going to communicate that once you're in the kingdom, this is the direction we're going. So it's not just you need a righteous like this to get in, but this is actually what the culture of the kingdom is like. We're going to deal with anger. We're going to deal with lust. We're going to deal, we're going to be truth tellers and covenant keepers, and we're going to love our enemies. So it's not just you need a righteous like this to get in, but this is, this is the currency that we exchange. This is the culture of the kingdom. And then the end game, the promises, is that one day we will be perfect like this. So the entrance, you need to possess a righteousness like this, you then begin to live this way more and more at once you're in the kingdom, and then one day there will be a perfect kingdom where there is no more anger or lust. Everyone will be a truth teller. Everyone will love each other. So, so notice that as we go through this, is that this is what's required to enter the kingdom. This is how we operate within the kingdom. And this is ultimately where we're going when Christ brings the new heavens and the new earth and we are resurrected with Him. What we have here is the inner beauty of the Beatitudes sort of expressed. Remember the Beatitudes? What it meant to be salt and light? Now it's getting gritty. Those are nice, vague, like, oh, those are nice, flowery things, poor in spirit and peacemaker and salt of the earth and light of the world. Those are really nice, and of course I'm that. Okay, let's do some test cases. Oh, I'm not like that in and of myself, right? So let's look at example number one. Let's look at example number one. Murder to anger. Example number one, five, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him, going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So what Jesus is telling us is that the root cause of murder is anger, Right? It's actually not enough to just, I didn't end someone's life. No, there's something in the heart, deeper, that is the real offense. Mere absence of murder doesn't mean you've kept the law. A righteousness from the heart roots out anger in all its expressions. What rises up in you, that's the issue. What also... 
you cause to rise up in others. That's what's amazing, right? He gives two examples. He gives a worship context of a man who's brought his animal in. He's gone through all the rituals. He's gone through all the gates. He's now at the point where the animal is going to be sacrificed. and He's confessed his sin. And it's all of a sudden, someone has something against me. Someone's angry with me. Stop everything. Stop all the ceremonies. Stop. I have to go get that right. Pause the entire worship service. Someone's angry with me. I need to go get that right. And then bring my offering. The other example he gives is a civil one. So this is meant to, to explain all areas of life, right? This is not just, hey, with the people of God, but no, in civil cases too. This is at your work. This isn't just at church that you need to not deal with anger, but you can be angry at work. You can't be angry with one of your church members, but you can be angry with your neighbor. No, he gives them a civil example, a court example, someone who is going to take you to court. You guys can't work it out. Anger continues to grow. And now you're going to put the judgment in the hands of somebody else. And the explanation there is like, you should handle that before it's out of your hands. Like, deal with the anger while you still have control of it because once it's put in the hands of another, you have no idea how that's going to go. So you have a responsibility to deal with anger, right? Talks about us insulting our brother. Even the words, you fool, which is an offense to someone made in the image of God would be liable to the hell of fire. It's a high standard. That's a deep righteousness. I find it fascinating here that it's not just that I should deal with the anger that I have towards others, but anger is such a dangerous thing that if I have caused it in somebody else, I have a responsibility to go. Right? I should stop worshiping it. If I've caused someone else to be angry and I know about it, I may not always know about it, I don't think we're responsible for what we don't know, but if I know about it and I leave it unaddressed, anger is so dangerous not just to my soul but to their soul that it would be appropriate to stop my worship right now and go deal with that. And it would be rather, it would, it would be a better thing to go ahead and be wronged and pay off a debt <laughs> than to have this go before court and become this public scandal. And you might still have to pay then as well. So deal with anger. Like, even if it costs you something, deal with anger. So I'm struck by this. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Um, well, here. I'm going to... I love this book, Good and Angry. I read this a few years ago. This is a really fun one to read in coffee shops because people give you space. <laughs> like, if you, you sit there and you just sort of have your eyes big, nobody bothers you. Um, so it just it, it really gets people's attention. But I love uh, chapter 2. Do you have a serious problem with anger? The whole chapter. Yes. That's it. End of chapter. He's just making a point that all of us deal with this. This is a good book, by the way. But I just, I'm struck by that. Because like, I don't tend to see myself as an angry person. I'm reading the chapter. Oh, yeah, this would be helpful for other people. And then chapter 2. Do you have a serious problem with anger? Yes. Now discussion questions. And it's like, yeah, that's all of us. The New Testament does not have a very positive opinion of anger. I was kind of struck by this as I looked through the New Testament. Just looked up where anger shows up in the New Testament. Let me put them on the screen for you. There's eight of them that I found. There's a few others that relate to Jesus' anger. And I think sometimes we can justify our anger by thinking Jesus is angry at things. And there might be some measure of that's right. Let's also keep in mind that Jesus is able to handle anger maybe in ways that we can't, right? Like he's God. (laughs) And he's the perfect human. And so I think we have to... Keep in mind that while there are things that are appropriate to be angry about, we need to be very careful. It's like walking across hot coals. Like, if you get across it quick, you're good. If 
you stand on it, you're going to be in trouble. And so just watch what the New Testament has to say about anger. Anger tells... It tells us that human anger is a very dangerous thing. 2 Corinthians 12, 20. For I fear that perhaps I may come and find you not as I wish, that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. So Paul's concerned about the Corinthian church, that what marks their, um, their fellowship is anger. Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident in contrast to the works of the Spirit, or the, the, the fruits of the Spirit. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's pretty exhaustive, right? There's no kind of exceptions there. Ephesians 6.5, Father's Day, here we go. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't pick at them until they get angry. Like, be careful about angering your children. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3.8, but now you must put them all away. The first thing he starts is anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. First Timothy 2.8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. James 1.19 and 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and listen to this, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What is Jesus talking about? A righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. Well, then you're going to have to deal with anger, and you're going to have to get rid of it fast. There's only one place where it tells us that we can be angry, Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Okay, so there are things that are right being angry. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You have till the end of the day to deal with it. But you do not get to carry anger to the next day. Do you see what it said? Leave your altar, stop the worship service, and go make anger. Do not play with anger, either in yourself or in others. Go deal with it, right? And there might be a category of being angry, but don't sin in your anger, and you got one day to get off those coals, right, before you burn your feet. So that's the righteousness that's called for. And now we see that the law is about the heart, not just about the actions you didn't murder, but what's in your heart. So here's a penetrating question for you. Have you dealt with all anger? The anger in you caused by others and the anger in others caused by you. I I don't know how to change what Jesus said. I, I think that's the question, right? Oh, is there anger in me? And is there anger I've caused in others that I need to go deal with now? And the application might be that the sermon might need to end for some of you right now. Like you might need to send a text and say, hey, we need to get together and talk. Some of you might need to grab somebody in this room and go, we need to go out in the lobby. Like, I assume Jesus isn't kidding here because he's talking about hell for saying someone's a fool, right? So maybe that would be the application is to just end worship now and go take a phone call now. So that's example number one. The others will go faster. But you get the point of what Jesus is doing, right? This first one is a good example of what he's going to do five more times through this text is take the law and draw it deeper and go the righteousness that we need is from the heart that deals with sins on the heart level. 
Example number two, from adultery to lust. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, going to the heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Whoa, lust in the heart is worthy of hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So the root of adultery is lust. The mere absence of the adulterous act doesn't mean you've kept the law. You get no Jesus points for that. And Jesus connects adultery with covetousness, the seventh commandment with the tenth, doesn't he? It's not just about, the, the, the commandments are interconnected. You break one, you break more than one. He's saying, no, actually what's happening in the act of adultery is there's a covetousness that's been undealt with in the heart long before that. So the tenth commandment is connected. And notice that the lust is your responsibility. It's not that someone comes in and goes, well, that woman wasn't dressed appropriately, so of course I lust. doesn't say that it's their responsibility at all. Now, there are other texts that talk about modesty. So, but no, lust is something you deal with. Someone's dressed immodestly over there. Tear your eye out. If, that'd be better than sinning, right? Back in March of 16th of 2021, there was a man who went and... Uh, went to a bunch of these spa massage places and shot to death eight women because going to these massage parlors inflamed lust in him. And so he's like, I got to take out the threat. And so he shot, and you can read about it, in Atlanta. His understanding of his Christian faith, part of a Baptist church like ours, and he'd gotten so twisted in his own mind that they're the cause of my lust, not me. I must, instead of plucking out my eye, cutting off my hand, I need to take out the source of my lust. Nothing in here at all. Like, it's all about me, right? If I'm tempted to lust, then I need to deal ruthlessly with that. It doesn't say anything about calling out the other person, right? There's other texts that deal with that. Notice that lust is your responsibility. Modesty is commanded in other places, but no one can ever put their lust problem on someone else as their responsibility. It says here, deal ruthlessly with lust in your own heart externally, lest you end up in hell eternally. Horizontal and inward sin resulting in a vertical offense against God and eternal damnation. He sees, he knows. And so Jesus starts with two commands that you would maybe feel good about at first, but like a good lawyer, he can fix you repeatedly, right? On all charges. And if you think back to our Genesis series, Genesis 3 and 4, do you remember that? What were the first two sins? Eve, with her eye, saw a fruit that she coveted and she took it with her hand. If only Eve would have plucked out her eye and cut off her hand, right? The whole world would be saved, right? But no, her eye and her hand gave expression to a lust that plunged us all into sin. And then in the very next chapter, she has a son who has seething anger at his brother. And God himself comes and says, Cain, there is a predator at the door of your house and it wants to master you. It's called anger. And it will seek to master you. You must resist it. God himself confronts Cain. And Cain goes, nope. And he kills his brother, right? So it's interesting that Jesus goes to these two places. Covetousness, seeing and taking with the hand, and, you, and then this anger that leads to murder. And you go, the very first two sins in the Bible are related to this, right? This is a human problem. We're all guilty. Sin is indeed utterly sinful down to the heart. 
So related to lust, have you, this is the penetrating question, have you taken responsibility for your own heart by actively cutting off every avenue of sinful lust? For some of us, that might mean getting rid of our smartphones. But I need it. i got to have the maps and check my email. Well, it would be better to enter heaven with a dumb phone and no internet access than to go to hell with Google Maps and email on your phone, right? I mean, really, like, that's, that would be an application, right? So don't mess with sin. Don't give expression to lust. Examples three and four. We'll put these two together because I think they're related to each other. Divorce and oaths. Verse 31, it is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from the evil one. So the divorce debate goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where there is a provision in the Mosaic law for someone to get a divorce. It's not permission to get a divorce on any and every case, but this was the interpretive question here. It says this in Deuteronomy 24.1, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and if he then finds no favor in his eyes, she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. Okay, that's the key phrase. Indecency in her. He writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Now, this was meant to be a concession to protect women. Because in a society where men hold all the power, you could sort of freeze a woman out. Like you could, you could make her, because you're still technically married, she can't go marry someone else or else she would be liable to stoning perhaps. But you're not going to care for her at all and might actually force her into some sort of prostitution or destitution. Like this was meant to be a concession that sometimes the covenant breaks grievously. And when it is broken, there's paperwork so that that woman isn't isn't under the oppressive hand of this man, right? There's provisions for her to be set free and not under a bad situation. There's other things in there as well, but this was meant to be a concession so that there wouldn't be abusive situations, that there would be less of that. And there would be paperwork, so it wouldn't be the woman's word against the man's because that would never work out for the woman. She would have paperwork that would say, no, I'm released, I'm free to marry someone else, right? Because if it's just her word against his and there's some vindictiveness, then she would be stuck. She would be destitute. She could die. And so because of hardness of heart, Matthew says, or Jesus says in Matthew 19, God permitted, Moses permitted a way to divorce. That was as a concession, as a grievous thing to go, yeah, sometimes people sin, a marriage covenant gets broken, and then there needs to be some sort of release so that it doesn't get worse, right? That's really the intention of it. But there were two schools of thought that developed. The Shammai school, which interpreted something indecent in her as meaning just about anything that the man desired. I didn't like the meal she cooked, I can divorce her. I no longer, she no longer has favor in my eyes, I find indecency in her, she's put on too much weight, she said something harsh the other day. So the Shammai school was very permissive. As long as men do the paperwork, it's a legal divorce before God, God doesn't mind. The Hillel school was more strict, I think I have these right, I might have them switched, but Hillel was more strict, that it's only if there's sexual immorality 
that the covenant has been broken because there's been sexual immorality outside the marriage. But that's the only reason that then the covenant has already been broken, therefore there can be a divorce, although not required. So what had happened is that the common idea then was just that as long as you've filed the right paperwork and you've cited this verse, divorce is fine. And Jesus is going, you're totally missing the intent of marriage, which is about covenant keeping. And here's what he's saying. Everyone that divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery because if she goes and marries someone else and the covenant isn't actually broken, then she's going to be breaking covenant by marrying someone else. You put her in a no-win situation. You put her in a position to sin because you have divorced, although the covenant before God is still together. It is only if the covenant was fractured that then there's the potential of being a divorce. But if the covenant's still intact before God, your divorce is illegitimate. So now she's going to have to break the marriage covenant like you're, you've caused someone else to sin. You've sinned and you're causing someone else to sin, right? That's the thing. Of going, well, you've made a technicality, the law-keeping, that it's all about as long as you filled out the right form and cited the right verse, therefore you're okay before God. In fact, you might have the obligation because you're such a godly, righteous man. This wife clearly is not worthy of being married to someone so great as me. Therefore, I will dismiss her in great holiness and I will marry someone more worthy of the holiness that I have. Like, can you just see how that would be gross? And Jesus goes, you can't do that. That's not what it's for. That's sin. Be a covenant keeper is really what he's saying. Be a covenant keeper. Don't look for ways to get out of this thing. And realize that there's always sin involved here. And then related to the oaths, I already talked about this a little bit. They had created a hierarchy of like, well, if you swear on the temple, you don't really have to keep that oath. But if you swear about the gold in the temple, well, you got to probably keep that one. If you swear on your own head, well, probably should keep that one if you swear in some other case. And so they created a hierarchy of truth-telling. If you swear by God, you got to keep that one. And so now you've got this little game that you can play, that I can get out of deals that I don't like. It sounds good at first, but no, I just swore by the city, not by God. I don't have to keep it. They'd come up with this whole set of system, this whole system in which you could create wiggle room in your dealings and be fine before God, as long as you kept the high one, right? And Jesus is like, that's not the point of the law. You've expanded a loophole. You've expanded this oath-taking thing to now mean that you can be justified and sometimes not telling the truth. And he's just like, just get rid of oaths entirely in terms of how you relate to people. Just be a truth teller. Just say what you mean, right? The point of the law was not that you would have outs, that you could say one thing and do another. The point of the law was that be a truth teller, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So the penetrating question then here is, where have you used technicalities to avoid promise keeping and truth telling? Have you used clever little wrangling? Well, I didn't technically say, right? Be a truth teller. Just be a person of your word. If others have been hurt, even put in a sinful situation by your slippery use of loopholes or technicalities or concessions, then go apologize. Make it right where you can. Repent of that attitude and perspective. And take different action going forward, right? Just be a truth teller. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Be a covenant keeper. Be a truth teller. That's what greater righteousness looks like. Instead of ways to be technically okay with God while still doing what you want.
Example number five, vengeance to self-sacrificing mercy. This is probably the hardest one. Those were the easy ones. Here's the hard one. Because it just comes up with so many questions. From vengeance to self-sacrificing mercy. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So what this is, I think, addressing, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was written in the law to, to curb personal vendettas. That, hey, someone has created some sort of offense and then you retaliate personally and you just take the level up. I was thinking while I was, I was thinking about this is like, back in the day, remember the Emmett Till? Emmett Till, a young black boy, he walks into a store with a white woman and supposedly whistles at her. And then within a couple of days, his body is found in a lake because people felt like that was an inappropriate thing for him to do. So they just, it was inappropriate for a black boy to treat a white woman that way. And so they killed him. They beat him up and they killed him. It's to stop that kind of stuff. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If someone has injured your eye, the, the, the highest level of justice, the absolute max would be that you're, you're due an eye. If you lose a tooth, someone take, knocks a tooth out, the max you can take is a tooth, right? This escalating personal vendetta, and even then it was supposed to be the government governing officials, the leaders, the elders that were supposed to do that. So you weren't ever supposed to take personal vengeance at all. There was mechanisms for dealing with that. What had happened, it seems like, is that now you were owed to do that. Like, because I believe so much in justice, I must retaliate. It had turned to where now retaliation was the godly thing to do. It's like, no, the personal disposition of the kingdom, kingdom citizen, the, the disposition personally is to be willing to absorb an offense. To de-escalate. What was meant to be a proportional penalty for governments and magistrates had now become a personal mandate that now I must get vengeance. And what we see is the Beatitudes just thrown right out. Meekness, mercy, peacemaking, suffering for righteousness' sake. Does this mean no military or law enforcement? I don't think it's speaking about governments here. I think it's speaking about a personal, personal offense. I think it also, because both Jesus and John the Baptist had soldiers come to them, and he, they never called them to leave their jobs. That was never, there was never a call that they had to leave their jobs because part of their job is restraining evil. That's not what this means. What he tells them is to be content with their wages and don't misuse your authority. Does this mean no self-defense? I don't think so. I don't think Jesus is trying to lay down a bunch of specifics here. I think he's trying to talk about a disposition. A disposition. And especially if others are involved, if some sort of offense or abuse has come against you and that's going to extend beyond other people, you're always looking towards what is best for others. That's the point. The point of this here is that I'm no longer concerned primarily about my rights, but, but others, right? If someone is endangering others, then appropriate action must be taken, but not out of vengeance and always through appropriate legal channels. Romans 13 talks about that. That said, Jesus is fully capable of giving exceptions and he doesn't. So I do think we're supposed to feel the weight and tension of this. I think this is a text that you would be good to work through in your small group sometime. What does this mean, right? What does this mean for personally in a sinful world where we do need to restrain evil and there's other texts here? So I do think that the bottom line is the kingdom citizen plays the long game. 
The kingdom citizen would rather be wronged. His strategy is to overcome evil with good wherever he can. And his desire is always to win his adversary. You know the movie Les Miserables? The story of Jean Valjean? He's a criminal, gets out, and uh, he can't find a job because he's got a criminal background, and so he takes refuge in this priest's house. And then in the middle of the night, beats up the priest, steals all the silver from his home, and escapes. The next day, the man is caught and brought back, and the people, the soldiers go, or the, uh, the police say, hey, we've caught this man, is this your silver? He says that you gave it to him. Did you give it to him? And the priest goes, of course I gave it to him. In fact, he forgot the candlesticks. And so he goes and grabs the candlesticks and fixes up the bag and goes, please let this man go. And then the, the police go, okay, this is crazy, but we believe you. And, that's all. and he looks at John Valjean and says, I have purchased you from evil. Use the silver and live a righteous life. But that sense of grace, like for the priest, like I don't care about the silver. I want to win my enemy, right? And you do so with grace. You overcome evil with good. Obviously, in a broken world, we have things to think about through here, but you just see the beauty in that story that the kingdom citizen is playing a long game and he's not willing to be wronged if that will penetrate the heart of the one that is wronging him. So this really is a challenge for the salt to be really salty, right? And the light to be really lighty. <laughs> because like Scott said, <clears throat> Scott, or, uh, salt only works when it's in the decay of the meat, and it's different than the decay of the meat. So what happens when you're wronged, when you're sinned against? You have a different response in the world because you're salt, right? When darkness comes in, you don't fight darkness with darkness, with retaliation. You fight it with light. This is a little bit, this is similar to the murder and anger. The general disposition is to de-escalate. The kingdom will be a place where anger is de-escalated, lust is defeated, covenants are kept, truth is told, Injustice defeated with grace and mercy. That's the kingdom ethic. That's the developing default setting of the kingdom citizen. That's the currency that they exchange is grace and mercy. It's so complicated. There are so many things that have been debated on this. I don't know that we have time to go much deeper into that. This is probably the most challenging verses Jesus said to actually apply and think through the implications of this, especially in a fallen, broken world. I don't think it's applying to governments. and I don't think it's necessarily. I think there's a limited scope here of personal offense, and I think there's all kinds of qualifications that would need to be worked out. Again, Jesus is not trying to give a particular letter of the law. He's trying to show you what greater righteousness looks like in principle, right? What its virtue is, what its default setting is. That I'm looking to win my enemy. I am not nearly as interested in my own well-being as I am about the well-being of others. That whole force you to go one mile and go with him too. In the ancient world, officials, government officials could, could force people to carry a load one mile. They were legally allowed to do that. And so you had to drop what you were doing. What a, what a frustrating thing under an oppressive government. He says, have the kind of disposition that you'd be willing to go to. Imagine what that would do to the guy who's leveraging his power over you. He can't steal what you give, right? Like if you're going to give labor away, like give enough of it that it's like he really can't steal what you give, right? And then what you're also doing is not only are you kind of blowing his mind on why you would view the world differently, but also you might be saving someone else having to carry that load another mile, right? Like 
you know what, if, if something, in, in some, if some oppression, some injustice is going to come, let me bury, bear more of it so someone else doesn't have to. Does that make sense? All kinds of qualifications. This is not in any way to, to enable abuse or any of those kinds of things that happen. Those are the kinds of things that need to be worked out together. Um, Jesus puts us in a tough spot here. I don't, want to, I don't want to erode what he said here, but it also is clear that there would be times when we would see that this, that, uh, this teaching taken away out of context with other teaching could be misapplied. So, um, that's as good as I can do. What, think of Jesus. Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life, I lay it down. And that's a, a bit of the idea of the Christian. It's like if they take your coat, if they take your tunic, go, hey, are you going to steal a cloak from somebody too? Why don't you just steal twice from me, right? Like, <laughs> like let, me, let me go ahead and bear this burden for the sake of someone else. And it might, it might penetrate to the heart, like Jean Valjean. It might penetrate to their heart that act of grace of going, I, I care more about the person robbing me, I care more about the person that might be robbed next than I care about whether or not I get my stuff back, right? A willingness to give of myself. So, have you sought personal vengeance for a real or perceived wrong done to you? Thinking primarily of yourself and how you've been wronged as opposed to the heart of other people involved. Prayerfully resolved to do an undeserved, non-manipulative act of goodwill towards someone who's wronged you. Okay? Specifics of what that might look like, you maybe need to get some counsel on. But, uh, but this is... Um, this is a really tricky one to unpack. Example number six. We're almost done. Thanks for hanging in there. Love-hate. The love-hate matrix of who you can love, who you can hate, is then switched to you need to love and love. You've heard it said you shall love your neighbor, and then it never says this in the, scripture, in the Old Testament Scriptures that you're to hate your enemy. But they just added that logically. Well, logically, it makes sense, right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, makes sense. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You're not salt. You're not light. Do not even tax collectors do the same? That's just the decay that everybody else has. If you greet only your brothers, what more do you, are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So it makes sense to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But notice the connection between prayer and love. It says, I say to you, love your enemies and do what? Pray. Pray. Isn't that fascinating? You can't love without praying. And you can't pray very long without beginning to love. Pray for your enemies. And not just that they would be taken out, per se, but maybe that their hearts would be changed. Notice the connection between sons of your Father and sons of God, said in the Beatitude 5.9, in verse 5.9. Peacemakers will be called the sons of God. Notice the connection between being distinct from the world, salt losing its saltiness, and light losing its lightiness. Right? Because he says just right here that what are you doing that's so much different if you just love your neighbor and hate your enemies? People going to hell do that. That doesn't mark the kingdom at all. That doesn't change anything at all. But if you're a prayer for your enemies, you love them. And I love that the, the motivation is what God is like. The motivation is not the worthiness of your enemy. 
the motivation is that because this is what God is like and that he's kind to his enemies. God is the motivation. Loving prayer and praying love is uniquely God-like, distinctively kingdom-like. And we consider Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What did Jesus Christ do on the cross? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What is Christ doing right now? Interceding. Praying. Because He loves us. Can't love without praying. Can't pray without loving. At least not for very long. Love this story. In 2015, Bashir Kamal went on television and thanked the so-called Islamic State terrorists for not editing out the last words of his brother and other Egyptian men who were beheaded on the beach in Libya. Lord Jesus Christ were the last words of the Christians before they were slaughtered because of their faith. The courage and integrity of their witness strengthened Kamal's faith. We are proud to have this number of people from our village who have become martyrs. He said after his brother's murder, Since the Roman era, Christians have been martyrs and have learned to handle everything that comes our way. This only makes us stronger in our faith because the Bible told us to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. He further explained that his mother is prepared to welcome any of the men involved in her son's beheading into her home. If one of them were to visit her, she would ask God to open his eyes because he was the reason her son entered the kingdom of heaven. What do you do with that? So many questions that are raised there. So many practical applications. But the principle that Jesus is laying out is that this is what salt and light looks like. This is what being perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. And the penetrating question then is what do you pray for your enemy? Do you pray for them? Maybe pray for someone right now that you feel justified in hating. So here we are. (laughs) The greater righteousness that Jesus speaks of. And we have more questions than when we started. Jesus didn't meant to give us a whole new law code for the kingdom, but just to show us that the greater righteousness to enter the kingdom is a heart transformed that is like God. You want to avoid the sin of murder? Deal proactively with any anger fast. You want to avoid committing adultery? Deal with lust ruthlessly. You want to get marriage right? Then be a faithful covenant keeper. You want to not break sacred oaths? Then always be a truth teller all the time. You want to promote true justice, lean hard then, counterintuitively, into selfless mercy. And if you want to be perfect, love and pray for your enemies. Everything that these people had been taught up to this point uh, had minimized God and had exalted the individual human. God's holiness now is way up and my sinfulness is now way down. And now we might be thinking, what what this greater righteousness and this demand for perfection, and I would ask you this, do you now feel polar in spirit? And do you grieve? Do you feel meek? Do you hunger and thirst for real righteousness? Congratulations, the law has done its work. Congratulations, you're blessed. You and I need a work of grace, a grace that pardons us from all of this sin that we just now discovered. We ran so many stop signs. (laughs) Of course we failed. And now we need a grace that empowers us to righteousness because we can't keep this standard. You and I sit here, our righteousness does not exceed the scribes and Pharisees. We are not perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. So we're out of the kingdom, right? Yes. We are, if that's the final word. Unless there's access to an exceeding righteousness apart from law keeping. Like what if there was a righteousness that could be gifted to us? 
that we didn't have to try to climb the ladder and undo all the wrongs, but would just be gifted to us. That could be credited to us. That would then slowly transform us into being a little bit more like this. And then maybe would ultimately one day lead us to the perfection of God. What if there was a righteousness that did that? What if it was something given, not earned, that pays the penalties we've incurred and credits as a gift the righteousness we need? What if that was the case? And let's say that that righteousness credited would also come with a power to conform the object that it impacts you and me into perfection. What if that was the case? And seeing the beginning of that work orchestrated by divine power would be brought to where we could be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's the only way to solve this riddle, right? Is a gifted righteousness that transforms us and completes and perfects us. Romans 3. I'll close here. I know this is long, but this is the best part right here. Romans 3, Paul tells us how to do this. After chapters 1 and 2, just obliterating people with the law, everybody's a sinner. Just like Jesus just did here. He then turns the corner in chapter 3. And just listen to this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth would be stopped and the whole world would be held accountable to God. Do you feel that? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? We just discovered a whole lot more sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, it's in line with them. It's a completion of them. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one meets the standard and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God put, him, put forward as a propitiation, a payment for sin, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. He's so great and glorious and holy. Because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? Like if we're righteous because it's been credited to us, then what bragging can we do? None. It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. For is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Do you see? Paul just explained what Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount. In the person and work of Christ, three things happen. When we trust in Christ, we are justified. We are gifted perfect righteousness before God entering the kingdom a righteousness that meets this standard in Christ. We're given it so we can enter. Like he said, no one enters unless their righteousness exceeds. Christ will give you his righteousness if you'll trust in him. We are justified. That's the entrance. We are being sanctified. Our perfect gifted righteousness comes with a power by the Holy Spirit that we become ever-emerging demonstrations of this righteousness. That's the ethos of the kingdom. And then ultimately, one day we will be glorified. We will be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That's the end game of the kingdom. There's no kingdom without perfection, but that perfection is not achieved by us. It is received by us and then accomplished in us and perfected one day before him. Do you see how the gospel works? We're humbled so deeply and then lifted up and transformed by his grace. So God is holy and you are accountable in all things to him, even at the heart level. His law shows that you're a sinner rightly headed for an eternal hell. 
But Christ came to clarify the standard of the law and then meet it perfectly in himself. Not only that, to to die for those who did not meet the standard, paying their penalty, and then rise, guaranteeing supernatural power that we can be changed. You can be gifted a perfect righteousness simply by faith, by pleading guilty before the law, and then the open hand of faith to receive his righteousness. You can be filled with the Spirit, and you can begin to see your thoughts, your actions, your words become conformed to the righteous heart of the law. You can be assured that you will be totally resurrected to God-like perfection, like Jesus Christ himself. This section of Scripture is the best and worst news in the world. The riddle is set before us. I want to be a part of a kingdom that's like this, but I don't qualify. Good news. I get a free access pass. The riddle is solved in Christ. You can be saved from law-keeping to the heart of what the law points to, and one day brought to complete and perfect enjoyment, displayment and sharement of that righteousness through the redeeming grace of Christ by faith. Let's pray. Oh God, this is a big passage and it just hits everything. And uh, there are so many things that we didn't even get to. There's probably a number of things I didn't even say correctly. But Lord, we trust your word has shined a light upon our lives has increased our view of you and your standards and your holiness and has shown just how deeply sinful we really are every minute of the day. And we thank you that the story doesn't end there, that Christ himself is our righteousness if we will trust in him, that we can enter the kingdom, that we can be part of the ethos of the kingdom as we begin to move this direction and one day the end game, that we will be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect if we will trust in Christ. So I pray, God, that you would obliterate any attempts in our own strength to be right before you, that we would surrender that and that we would put all of our weight, all of our hope, all of our trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and then begin to live out this kingdom life here on earth so that the world might see the goodness of Jesus and that there might be more people perfected with him in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.